happy. Now, it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Goldie Blumenstick. <laughs> Goldie Blumenstick is a senior writer at the Chronicle of Higher Education and one of the nation's most respected higher education journalists. Known for her expertise on for-profit higher education and educational innovation, she has reported for the Chronicle from China, Israel, Peru, and several countries in Europe. She's also the author of the best-selling book, American Higher Education in Crisis, What Everyone Needs to Know, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Goldie Blumenstick. Good evening, everybody. Thanks for joining us here tonight. Um, I understand they're, they're going to be showing the bat signal tonight at 7.30 in LA, so I think it's very cool that you all are here tonight instead for this. Um, uh, we have a terrific panel here tonight. Um, very quickly, I'm just going to introduce the panel. From um, We have Daryl Adams, who's a former superintendent from Coachella Valley Un Unified School District, and we're going to hear a little bit more tonight about his, the Wi-Fi on Wheels program that he brought to that district. Um, Jamie Cassip, who is the Google Education Evangelist. Um, Marie Sinney, who's the... Uh, Provost and Senior Vice President of Academic Affairs at University of Maryland University College, and uh, Michael Crow, who is the President of Arizona State University, familiar to some of you here tonight, where they've created a lot of interdisciplinary programs and have really ramped up a lot on online education and digital education in general. Um, we have a really cool topic tonight, frankly a very big topic. Can digital, can, can digital education dismantle the class system? We got 45 minutes, should be a piece of cake, no problem there. Um, so last week I put that topic out on Twitter and I asked people, what would you ask? Um, I thought maybe I'd crowdsource a few questions. Um, the first answer I got back, someone who said, what are you smoking? That should be the first question that we should ask this panel. Um, the second person asked, said, ask about decades of research showing access to technology doesn't improve learning and takes up needed time, money, and other resources. And that's a question we are going to get to tonight. But first I thought, let's... It's a big topic. I think we need to break it down a little bit. Mm -hmm. Each one of you, just in a phrase or two, when we talk about this notion of digital education in this context about the American class system and what we're talking about today, what are we talking about? Mm -hmm. what, do you, what does it mean to you as we're talking about this? Well, for me, it means that digital, um, digital education must break down the class system, especially in America. Uh, born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee, and living through the, the 60s and the 70s and the civil rights movement, uh, our access to information and knowledge at that time prevented people like me from getting ahead. But now with digital education and technology and the tools that are available, power and, and the knowledge is there available for everyone. So I think as we continue to go forward in the 21st century and as we've done in, in the education system throughout the nation, uh, students are going to have the opportunity to use these tools to access information like never before. That is power. That is opportunity. Jamie, a phrase or two. What, I mean, in this context, what does digital education even really mean? What yeah, so, <coughs> so let's start with this idea that you're right. Technology doesn't improve learning. Great teaching improves learning, right? Great education improves learning. Technology is an enabling and supporting capability. And how we use it as a tool matters. And I think we can get into more about how we use these technologies as tools in our classrooms and how teachers use it. And I think that will get us mm -hmm. to a point where we can start making sense of what we talk about when we talk about digital learning, because it's just learning. Digital learning versus learning doesn't make any sense to me. Okay, Marie. Yeah. So I think it's really important to understand that um, you know you can talk about K-12, who I think these two gentlemen are really focusing on K-12, and then there's higher education. And so at my institution, we have 85,000 adult students who are studying predominantly online, and so digital education is simply 
putting the tools of education uh, into a technology. Mm -hmm. But that's not enough. Access is important, but it's not enough. Mm -hmm. there's, there's support that has to happen, et cetera. And I think we, I hope we will get into, knowing Goldie, we will definitely get into <laughs> this. The higher ed system itself actually, um, I think, creates even more of a class system. So if you know of someone who has gone to Harvard or if you have gone to Harvard, you come out with a very different set of expectations about your life and probably already came from a different set, series of expectations than, say, a student that comes out of my institution. Okay, so I promise you we will get to that very <laughs> soon. Yay. <laughs> yeah, I think what I would say is that uh, there's everyone in this room has been technologically enhanced. You're wearing glasses. You might have taken vitamins. You're wearing a thing called shoes. Uh, uh, you're eating uh, uh, advanced, uh, unbelievable food. Uh, that you're putting in and through your body, we're all technologically enhanced. Mm -hmm. All teaching has been technologically enhanced mm -hmm. in different ways through time. And so those two people that sent that thing in, I'm not sure if they understood the question. And so it's... it's well, a broad question. Yeah, so but, but no, what I mean is that it's, it's literally the case that technology is nothing but an enhancement of the individual human. It's nothing but a way in which a teacher can be enhanced, mm -hmm. a learner might be enhanced. A dictionary in a book is a technology that was far superior to the world before the book and before the dictionary when you had no access to the actual definition of the language that you were uh, asked to sort of master. And so all we have now going forward are tools that we might manufacture or might develop or might use to enhance the individual teacher or the individual learner or the community of learners or the community of teachers. And that's all these technologies do. Mm -hmm. And, they're, and they're, they're, they are innate. Uh, they are passive objects to be empowered through the creativity of individual students or individual teachers. So I want to think, take a step back from this big question then, <laughs> can, di can digital education dismantle the class system? Can education even dismantle the class system? Because <laughs> I think, well, actually I think every one of us on this stage <laughs> actually represents um, somebody whose um, life was enhanced by education and uh, certainly people in the audience as well. Um, I think as a nation, I think we have to be pretty honest and say <laughs> right now, particularly in higher education, <laughs> It's, more strat it's probably stratifying the class system as opposed mm -hmm. to enhancing it. So is the premise even right? Can we, I mean, or what we really, is while we're talking about something here where digital education can actually change the nature of education and make it, and, and do something that traditional education hasn't. So if you took a thousand variables related to education and social mobility in the United States since 1900, you'd find, uh, you'd find one, if you took a thousand variables related to social mobility, you'd find education is the single most predictive mm -hmm. variable for uh, social class change in the United States. And so that's a powerful driver. It's so powerful that we're dissatisfied with the present outcome. It's so powerful, education is such a powerful driver of social mobility that we're unsatisfied with the fact that we do not have everyone benefiting from it. Mm -hmm. So that's the solution that has to be derived. We've never had a system that could benefit everyone. We've always had a system that benefited a few, then more, then more, then more. And now we realize we need to benefit everyone. Do you really think it's working that way? I mean, there's, we certainly have a very stratified system in our country a lot. I mean, generally speaking, the wealthier students in our country mm -hmm. go to more elite institutions, mm -hmm. more, more selective institutions. Mm -hmm. Lower income students in our country who come out of school systems that don't prepare them wa that well mm -hmm. end up, if they're lucky at all, to be going to a college or going more to community colleges right. and uh, lower prestige institutions and lower mm -hmm. status institutions. Well, the, uh, Dr. Cross says the opportunity is there, right? So I, I'm, I get this question all the time, is education broken? And, and it's hard for me to answer that question because I am a first generation American. I was born and raised 
on food stamps and welfare in Hell's Kitchen, New York. Not any New Yorkers in the house? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's a cheap one. Usually louder than that. that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but the, uh, cheap applause. But I grew up in the old Hell's Kitchen of the 60s and 70s. Not a great place to grow up. And mm -hmm. I went to high school. I went to college. I went to graduate school at ASU. And I get to do what I do today because of education. But more importantly, what we need to consider is that the impact that we have on students goes on for generations and generations. Because my kids are impacted by this, right? My daughter graduated from college. She, she just went to, she never, she never thought she wasn't gonna go to college. She assumed she was gonna go to college because I went to college and her mother went to college and people in her life went to college. She assumed she was going to graduate school because I went to graduate school and her mother's a teacher and she went to graduate school. <laughs> She assumed I was going to pay for it, but that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. that, that's a good problem to have. But, you know, so, so that's the real impact to Dr. Crow's point about the opportunity that we have an opportunity. Now, has it impacted everyone? Is it, can we do more? Are there more people like me growing up in these communities that, have that, that can have that opportunity? We need to do a better job with that. But the opportunity to do it is, is real. It's been real for a long time. Uh, one thing I've just been wondering as I've been thinking about this question is, is there something about digitizing, using digital technology to education that changes education? I mean, is, is it, is, are we talking about something different in 2017 than we were in 2000 even? Like, does it, does it have a power now that it didn't have before? I, I think it does because now for the first time we, we truly can personalize education and individualize education. And, you know, I, I dream of a day when we can have an app that can pretty much be, uh, read your biorhythms and tell you what you need to learn or how you need to learn something. And you see schools are starting to spring up around the country like that, alt school up in the uh, Bay Area. They're, they're doing this approach where they're, they have cameras in all the classrooms and kids are helping to design their own program. Uh, Summit Public Schools, which you know, I brought to my school district, you know, students are able to design programs from as early as sixth grade or seventh grade. And if we help them find their passion in life, they never work a day in their life. Technology can al allow us to do that. Now you gotta train your teachers to be able to use it because if not, it's just another tool that sits there and they're afraid of it. But we have students coming out of institutions like, you know, in Maryland and, and Arizona State now that they're ready for this. But now we've got to bring the leadership on, on board and we've got to make sure parents are involved in the process as well. So I'd like to make a, a, a distinction between actual learning because I keep going back to the question, which as you know, I thought it was awfully broad and it was <laughs> a little like, really, how do you dismantle entire class system? So there's, there's the learning that goes on in institutions. And again, I'm thinking about colleges and universities. Mm -hmm. And then there's the signaling function. And so I know that many of our students in my institution are getting really good quality education. There are still people, there's still mm -hmm. employers that will question it. So mm -hmm. we don't necessarily- And that's that because it's an online education. Because they know that it, it yes, it's an online mm -hmm. education, but we're in the University System of Maryland, so there's that signal that, well, it's a public institution, so it must be good. Like ASU online, well, it's ASU, so it must be good. Mm -hmm. But if you come from an institution that does a good job, but isn't, say, a public brand, that signal isn't there. And so I think we still have, if, if you look at who runs the country, look at who's on the Supreme Court, look who is, is elected in, uh, into, well, except for our president right now, but we won't go into that. <laughs> Although, you he know, went to the University of Pennsylvania. He is the smartest guy that's ever been elected, but <laughs> yeah, but he did go to Wharton for his MBA. But still, that w we segment as people then leave, and, and that creates even more of our ossified class system. So to the question of are things fundamentally different in 2017, I think unequivocally. So we have found ways, uh, as has been suggested, to 
create intelligent tutor devices that would allow an individual to tirelessly be assisted in their own individual learning process in addition to their teacher, not in lieu of the teacher. Right. And so one of the things that's kind of interesting is this constant juxtaposition of somehow this is going to be disruptive to the core way that human beings learn, which is <laughs> eyeball to eyeball with each other, with their friends and solving problems and being creative with either alone or with others. None of that goes away. But we don't need to know what we knew only in 2000 or 1980 or 1950 or 1900. In fact, the, the rate of acceleration of change and our brain capacity is very substantial. Mm -hmm. is, is got to find ways in which learning can be enhanced for every human, accelerated, broadened, deepened, personalized, and made as human contact touch as possible with all of these other things that are there to assist you. And, and so all we're doing is we're just enhancing that process and finally getting to the point where we can actually say there's maybe a chance that the full learning capacity of a human brain might be able to be vis visible to us and might be able to be operationalized across everyone. As opposed to, oh well, those, those learners, they're slower learners, or those people, they can't have access to this. That's the whole way that human beings have operated. They've operated in a way where they stratify everything, they classify everything, they class structure everything. It is time to dynamite that stuff out of existence and use these tools to be able to do it. So one of the things, so you mentioned employers and what employers are looking for and whether they think one certificate is valuable versus another, or what degree versus another. What I'm excited about is this next generation of students who are just starting to come into our, into our college yeah, system. Actually, I want to... Gener uh, let me just finish this point. In terms of Generation Z and the fact that 70% of them don't want to work for you at all. Right. They want to do their own thing. Right. And because of technology, because four, four kids can pick up laptops and have some server space on Google or Amazon and run some machine learning background, they can run anything, right? And so this idea of employers controlling who gets to say what skills are needed is kind of going away, and I'm excited by that. Do you, we hear this all the time, oh, the digital natives are, com the digital natives are coming into the schools now that they have these high expectations. Is that really true, though? I mean, are these are all these students that digitally savvy, or no, is that just is that just well? We got to realize that this is the this is the first generation that doesn't know what the world looked like before Google, yeah. right? Yeah. They they don't know what yeah. that world looked like before technology, the internet, yeah. the internet. Yeah. and yeah. so mm -hmm. and and so they're going to have a different expectation of what learning looks like, but more importantly, what they can do with technology. We still look at tech. We're still having debates about technology. I don't know what the world looking before. We're before trying technology. to get, we're trying to get the name of the species altered. So, so everyone born, <laughs> everyone born uh, before 2000 is a Homo sapien. Everyone born after is a Homo sapien.net. And what that means, <laughs> and what that what that means is they are fundamentally different. They're they're carrying supercomputers in their pocket yeah. with access to everything. They can ask questions in ways that no, we have no idea where this is going. We have no idea what it means. We have no idea. You, you could, if you were a disciplined, self-disciplined person, you could basically educate yourself at the moment. Yeah. You mm -hmm. could, but we've all, you, could, you could educate yourself with a lot of things earlier. You could have gone to the library and read a lot of books mm -hmm. earlier. But for some reason, we didn't. That, was, that wasn't always the way we did it. We well, some people a, did. Well, some people <laughs> did, but we still developed schools and colleges and systems. Yeah, and but we Fre had Fred Frederick Douglass educated himself in an unbelievable way. It was the penalty of death to be taught to read. He teaches himself to read. He is a far better writer and a far better speaker mm -hmm. than anyone I've ever met. Mm -hmm. And so if, if he had had access to an even broader self-taught learning environment, mm -hmm. who knows what that right. mega genius could have been able to do. 
That's a genius. That's a genius you personality. Know, you know, like I said, I was born and raised in Memphis. I couldn't really go to Memphis State University until 1972, I believe, in 1970, <laughs> somewhere in there. Uh -huh. So I didn't have, we didn't have that opportunity to even learn in that environment. But now, with the power of technology, I can do my own thing. I can Google it. I can research it. I don't, I don't need a teacher. But we can't forget the fact that we do have to have that connection as human beings, body, mind, heart, and soul. And that's why I think the visual and performing arts, if you're one of those majors like I was, we're going to be in high demand soon. Because when all the robots take over and all the machine learning gets going and Skynet takes over, what the heck are we supposed to do? You know? So, yeah. so, so we, we got to remember there's a balance that has to, be, has to happen here as well. There's some Skynet <laughs> officers up there. Yeah, yeah you know, <laughs> you're still coming down. So we, there has to be a balance as well is what I'm saying. Well, you you kind of yeah. raised this with me when we were getting ready for this discussion. We talked about whether, whether the knowledge economy and whether the sort of the digital t technologies would sort of create a different kind of a class system. Like yeah, see, I, people would be connected in different ways. And right, see, I actually wish we were talking about sort of two different things. One is, I do think that there's all kinds of advances in not just technology, but learning science. Mm -hmm. That we know mm -hmm. how people learn now, and if we yes. just would all use it better. K-12 mm -hmm. is starting to, but yes. higher ed still has a ways to go. <laughs> I know the R2 institutions are, are trying mm -hmm. to use learning science. Mm -hmm. So I do think we are hitting, we will be able to hit a point soon where mm -hmm. more people will be able to learn in far better ways than ever before. Mm -hmm. but, but I don't think it's just di digital education that will upend the class system. I think it's this coming acceleration, as Michael said, of all things in our society. Mm -hmm. So between the internet, computing power, um, we, we, I can connect with anyone on the internet. I can link into anybody. The, the power of small is actually now quite big. Mm -hmm. uh, we can form networks. There are ways that power is going to shift, I think, pretty quickly. That, I believe, is what will we'll, we'll start to dismantle this. And yet at the moment, though, we're still, I mean, I don't know if some of you have, may have been reading a little bit about this new book that just came out by the English author Richard Reeves, where he talks about the American class system. He thinks American, the American class system is more... Um, solid than the British class system, mm. and he talks about this 20% that are... What does solid mean? You mean more mm. rigid? More rigid, yeah. sorry. And yeah, we don't talk he, about yeah, it. Not established, but that mm. and we don't even like to talk about it. He says yeah. in the United States, though, we have the top 20%. He's not worried about the top 1%. Don't 1%. they have like a queen in England or something? They do still have that queen <laughs> thing. <laughs> they got that whole queen thing going, yeah. <laughs> It'd be hard to have a social class system less rigid than one where there's a hereditary leader. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, we're kind of have our we have our own king now, so so to speak. I mean, we look at what's going Not on going in there. DC. <laughs> but he did. I mean, edit he, that out. Please. He does. <laughs> <laughs> he does talk about this top twenty percent as being the sort of the dream hoarders, and he and he's. I mean, right now, this all sounds great. These networks, these new systems. Dream hoarder. Dream hoarder. That's his new phrase. This is a pl This guy must be angry at things. <laughs> 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 but, I mean, he, when you look at the side today, he does sort of say we're not, you know, Silicon Valley has this notion that the technology is open and everything's, you know, everyone can sort of walk in there and you don't even have to go to college anymore or you could just, you know, play on the internet and suddenly you'll be a tech, tech billionaire. But we know that it's not exactly how it works. No, being a billionaire is hard. <laughs> not that I would know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but the... You work for some. <laughs> I, I, I have a couple of friends. But the... <laughs> But the idea, it, so it's not about just being around technology. It's like, you know, all of us were born and around when there were 18-wheeler trucks. It doesn't mean that we can all drive an 18-wheeler truck. It, you still have to learn how to do stuff. And, but the opportunity, like when, when we were kids, when I was a kid, I don't want to say you're old like me, but when I was a kid, I am. <laughs> I, I, when, I had inf when I needed information, when I needed to write stuff, I had to go to the Columbus Library on 51st Street and 10th Avenue. 
that was closed on the weekends, that would close at five o'clock, that when I would look for a book wasn't there, the, the limited amount of resources that were available to me helped, you know, predetermined what information I had access to. That is no longer true. I show a picture of Google when it originally started, right, where Larry and Sergey put a bunch of machines together at Stanford. That could happen anywhere in the world now. Anywhere with a good internet connectivity, mm -hmm. four kids can build anything that they want. And that's, there's power in that. Michael, you and I have known each other a long time, and I've interviewed you a lot of times. I sort of dug back in the archives to a quote that uh -oh. we had. Oh, yeah, it's always bad. <laughs> <laughs> in 20, a 2012 quote, you were, were, you were talking a little bit about, you were sort of worrying about the future of higher education, and you said you, wonder, you worry about a future where we let rich kids get, get ta taught by professors yes. and poor kids get taught by computers. Absolutely, and yeah. I still worry about that because... So what, are we, what so are we talking about here? Yeah, now? so what we're talking about, though, is the enhancement of the teacher, the enhancement of the professor, the enhancement of the learning network. What I was concerned about there were uh, some uh, investors that were out there investing in for-profit companies and other entities where they thought that there was no need for the knowledge creator, the professor. Right. There was no need for the master teacher. There's always a need for the master teacher, always a need for the professor. The machines around them are the enhancement, and that where that was going at the time five years ago when I talked about that was it seemed that people said, well, rich kids and ultra-smart kids can talk to humans and everybody else can just talk to machines. Well, there's nothing that we're doing that doesn't involve in some way the master teacher, the professor. Our online courses are derivative of our core faculty. Uh, e even more so good. in this world that yes. we're building because yes. if we talk about what are the skills that kids really need, everyone will agree, collaboration, problem solving, critical thinking, all these things that we talk about. A teacher has to be able to look at a classroom and say, what team can I put together? You know, whose strengths are what, and how can I help them build off each other? What, how can I help them provide feedback to each other? Like, literally, like having a great manager in the room as opposed to just being a knowledge base. And so the role of the teacher becomes more important in this, in this world. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. I agree. Mm -hmm. Marie, you and I were when you met when you and I were chatting. You also mentioned this other notion that I've been thinking about a lot, which is we hear a lot about the way that digital education is changing traditional higher education in some ways. But what about the students who don't want to go for a four-year degree? I mean, mm. we heard today the president talking a little bit about more about having apprenticeship <laughs> apprenticeship mm -hmm. training in the, in this country. Um, there's certainly a great need. There's a lot of discussion now about more people going for um, certificates and programs that are not leading necessarily to a, to a four-year right. program mm -hmm. and associates or even a sub-associates. Mm. We haven't seen a mu that much innovation in digital education in those areas, have we? Or am I missing the boat on that? Um, well, that's pre you know, that isn't my strongest suit, but no, we don't have a, an apprenticeship program, say, uh, which isn't digital necessarily. Well, I'm but just thinking, we like, at least have applying these digital technologies to that to that sector of the, of the education yeah, economy. Yeah, we've gotten kind of... We have boot camps. ...carried away with... Um, the whole four-year degree, like mm -hmm. everybody needs a, you know, a four-year degree, and um, but there there need to be better mm -hmm. opportunities for jobs in that blue-collar working-class kind of group. Which I came from a working-class background. Um, it's hard to be in the working-class and truly middle-class anymore, mm -hmm. and that's an area that we have to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. It's not something you know, that I do at my institution, but I think it, the move towards more apprenticeships is a really good way to go. I, I think there's huge movement in this space for um, uh, middle skilled jobs. There's uh, unbelievable. The, the plumber and pipe fitter unions are some of the most sophisticated educational enterprises using technology, using the internet, using ways to drive things forward. There's all kinds of uh, skill based uh, professions and trade based professions, I think, that are mm -hmm. becoming more and more sophisticated. So, what's happening is what we're realizing is that human beings have more potential than we gave them credit for. 
and they can learn more things yeah. and faster and broader yeah. and take on more things and make things happen. And what we're seeing across everything from middle skill jobs to trade skill jobs to military training to university training. And so what we've gotten is we, we have too much of a social hierarchy assigned to all of this that somehow right. mm -hmm. if you were admitted to some elite, almost uh, uh, exclusive, admit almost no one four-year college, you're somehow better than everybody else. Well, I'm sorry to say you're simply not. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so we should just move on from that point and just assume that everybody's finding their way, finding their niche, finding what they like, finding what they enjoy, and they're getting themselves educated along the way to be able to do that. Well, one of the things I, I think is important that we worked on in my district was it doesn't, it, it doesn't come down to who goes to college and who does it. They all should be prepared to go. You make that decision when the time comes. But you also, you also should be prepared to go into a career, a passion, a purpose that you really want to do in your life. And as, as opposed to us feeding kids in square boxes and square holes and, 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 and putting them into this industry, that industry, you could do a plethora of things in your life. You can be a, a, a plumber, you can be a musician, you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer. Is the, is the education a, system, though, has that, the education jumped into this? I it mean, has to change. It changed in our district because we insisted on it. And, and, and the motto was preparation for college career and citizenship. Now, some of my kids weren't even like natural born citizens here, but we don't <laughs> care about that. We care about the fact that they are here. They are, uh, you know, they are a product of, a, of society now. They need to be prepared for college career and citizenship. And that community took off because that was the belief. Every kid should have a device. Every kid should have, should have access. And they should have the ability to have choice when they graduate from high school. And that's what education should start really focusing on instead of putting kids in boxes. But are we seeing much in innovation around mm -hmm. using digital technologies yes. to these? In my, to these in my district, you are. To you the, are. <laughs> <laughs> because to, to these careers that are, to, to, to training yes. that isn't just at the BA level. I mean, I think we're, we're starting to get into this stuff, right? And, and so first of all, let's it's start. It's harder in a way, Let's right? start with the fact that at Google, you don't need a college degree to work at Google. It's not a requirement. How right. many people, I, we hear that a lot, how many people at Google don't actually have a college the degree? The guy who runs infrastructure for Google doesn't have a college degree. I don't even think he graduated from high school. There's lots of people who, uh, there's some people who never graduated from high school. <laughs> now that's a supply and demand chain thing, right? Because, you know, people want to come work for us and they had, happen to graduate from college, but it's not a requirement, right? It's not something you have to have. But at the same time, I think that the technologies that are coming have an interesting angle on the middle skills, on those technical skills, like VR, AR, uh, what we can do with training around, around these things. Like I, when someone provides, when someone's gonna have, when I'm gonna have surgery, hopefully not time soon, but whenever I have surgery, I want that doctor to be able to have access to the latest and greatest information at their fingertips, mm -hmm. on their glasses, right there. Yes. And that's true for lots of different industries. Mechanics, how many, electricians. Mm -hmm. How many people in this room have looked through, have seen, looked at VR stuff? I'm just curious. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty good number. Yeah, I've been mm -hmm. sort of watching some but demos. But we're on day one of that. I, I watched a few demos on it. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I would just add, so we're launching a digital high school in um, August. And the digital high school, uh, like we just heard, is prep for life, mm -hmm. prep for career, prep for college. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say prep for college. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the ASU Digital Preparatory Academy, prep mm -hmm. for life, yes. prep for career, prep mm -hmm. for college. And so that means designing it in a way where it works in all of those things. And I think there are, uh, there's certainly no one that wants people to be uh, less skilled, less yes. capable, less adaptive uh, at all. And so mm -hmm. I think these things are moving into all sectors. It's not just about college. Yeah, I, absolutely. It, in the sense that those jobs are very technical now. If you, if you are in an apprenticeship to become, um, I don't know, some sort of journeyman, et cetera, 
they're highly technical, and so the yes. training does have to be yes. highly technical. But the issue, though, is how many ki how many parents? I'm not going to ask for a vote, <laughs> but how many parents really say, "If you want to be a plumber, that's great. We will support you." Mm -hmm. There's always there's this this sense mm -hmm. of status, though, and if you well, know, maybe in the world that you're in. I mean, right. I think probably in many communities, there's not necessarily that sense of status. Still, 30% right. of the country has a BA. The rest right. of the country doesn't. So. Right. Yeah. And, <laughs> 80, and about 90% of the population wants their children to be maximally educated. 90%. Mm -hmm. It's a very yep. high number. They yep. want their children to have a life outcome right. mm -hmm. as good or better than theirs. And I'm not talking about financially. I mean, from the perspective of, of lifespan, healthy lifespan, healthy, mm -hmm. healthy life mm -hmm. outcome. Right. Education is a mm -hmm. part of all those things. It's not just about right. jobs or money. And here's the other thing about this generation, again, that's preparing to go to college. They know that 70% of Americans are disengaged with their work. They don't want that. They don't want it. They don't want to be like their parents and work, have, be, you know, we grew up with the, if you get your education, you work hard, and you're loyal and dedicated and work hard, you can advance in a company. They watch that, that promise be broken. And so they want to do something different. They want to be engaged with their life. They want purpose. They want to be able to have mastery around the skills that they need, mm -hmm. but they don't necessarily want to work for companies so they can advance from director to VP to whatever. That's, that's gone away. So how does, how, does the, how does the workforce need to reshape itself to prepare for a generation that thinks that way? Yeah. I, I want to come back to this issue of cost a little bit because the VR stuff that I've seen is really cool and it's not cheap to create. Um, and I want to sort of get back to that question that the Twitter person sent to me early on. A lot of this stuff has costs associated with it, you know, financial costs, <coughs> time and attention costs. Mm -hmm. um, how do, you know, are we as, as a country prepared to, to, sp to spend the money on this technology? Or we, and are we going to uh, use that to sort of replace, replace the things that we should also be doing, like regular investments in education? No. <laughs> and All I'll right. tell you why, because when you look at the, the cost of devices, when we started in 2011, we had almost zero devices. And our district, pretty much the pipe that gave us our broadband was about, you know, 0.3 uh, of, of one gigabyte. Okay, so we go back and we say, okay, well, all these kids should have devices, and the government's not going to give it to us, the state's not going to give it to us, but you could give it to your own community if you band together, you know, put your money together. You can have every kid with a device from preschool to high school. So this community agreed to tax themselves. One of the poorest communities in America, by the way, agreed to tax themselves so they can prov provide that device and the access to all of these students so they can learn in the 21st century. What? Now, now we, then we find out there are some communities uh, within this greater community uh, that don't have access. They're in trailer home parks or in, their, they're in areas where it's too rural. So I said, well, why don't we put routers on the buses, park them in the neighborhood? And they said, wow, that's a great, I never thought of that. And I said, well, you know, you got to do whatever it takes to get these kids connected. And I said, I would put a, a router on a pigeon and fly them around the neighborhood if I have <laughs> yeah. to, to get these yeah, kids yeah. connected. Because if not, they're going to be at a, a, a disadvantage when they go out in the real world. But now I got people saying, you know, you have an aviation academy. Uh, here's a corporate jet. So these kids can learn how to fly and be a part of this industry. Now, here, here's a, a construction uh, uh, a union who wants to come in and train the kids in some of those high-paying jobs. So now you open up this community to possibility because the technology and the ability to come together and to provide it changed that community. And when President Obama heard about that and, and talked about it at the White House, those kids were in those classrooms yelling and screaming like they had won the Super Bowl because the President of the United States was talking about them. Yeah. So, so, so it's possible 
to, to, to make this transformation, you just got to have the will and the, and the togetherness. Was there ever a debate in your community or about whether that was really the best place to put the resources as opposed to <laughs> other kinds of resources? Well, not until after. I kind of tricked them a little bit, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and kind of just, you know, you got to do this because if you don't, you know, you're already at a disadvantage. You're on the wrong side of the tracks. You know, you know, you, you, 100 percent of our kids get free and reduced lunch. You know, it was really about 99.9, but they said, just give it to the other 10. We don't care. It was, it was that much of a challenge for that community. But when they said we could do better and we could do it together, they were like, let's, let's go for it. Now, there was some, some dissension later on with those who had lost power in the community because the parents had taken over their school district. We weren't just the district that does it to you. We were the district that does it with you. And so some people didn't like that. But that majority of those parents and students, they will never go back because they see the power uh, that they have together. Well, I mean, the reason I ask that is because I think some of you may have read the article in the New York Times that talked about Google's role in mm -hmm. education. Jamie, you sort of featured a little prominently in that article. Um, <laughs> but, but it talked a little bit about some concerns that some of this emphasis on technology and devices becomes somewhat of a distraction for districts and for schools and maybe even for colleges as well. And it takes away from some more fundamental discussions about broader investments in higher education. People start to say, we'll just invest in technology and that'll fix, that'll fix some things that the you know, that we don't yeah. want to make the other investments. But it seems like we have over, oversimplified thinking in both right. of those arguments. So the, the notion that somehow technology doesn't reduce cost, mm -hmm. I've been thinking since you posed that for a single example where that's the case, I can't come up with one. Right. Where technology does not reduce the cost of something. Yeah. Uh, now, there are some examples in healthcare, but not when you measure it against outcomes and, and if you value the lives that are being uh, mm -hmm. saved along the way. And then it's on because you the way you calculate mm -hmm. savings, right? Yes, but on the other side, though, you know, relative to... Uh, uh, you know, this sort of impact of technology, I think what people are reacting to is that it's different. So we have three times the number of graduates, eight times the number of learners, about five times the level of funded research at my institution than we had when we started this process, and our faculty is the same size. Technology is one of the main ingredients that we've been able to put on the table. So it has dramatically enhanced our ability to do things in a different way. Now, was it easy and are there issues? Easy, no. Issues, yes. Uh, does it in the long run look like a path for us to greatly be able to enhance educational outcomes at a lower cost? The answer is yes. And you think the quality hasn't suffered? I'm certain of that because we measure our quality against all the other colleges who are operating in similar but differentiated, perhaps less technologically uh, rich environments, and we'll hold our graduates and their quality and their market position and their awards and their recognition up against anyone, anywhere. Well, and the other argument against that is this idea that somehow it's choosing one thing over the other yeah. as opposed to investing in both, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that we're going to give you very little money and but don't spend it on technology right as opposed to we should be giving the resources that schools need right that's argument number one argument number two is but we live in the real world yeah we live in a real world and but this idea that you don't want to give a kid a portal to all the world's information to access to all the things that are available to them the, the tools that are available to them is going to create even a greater digital divide because it's not going to stop the parents of kids who have money from not giving them devices and not giving them technology and not giving them those tools. And so the problem is you have kids from districts like this or where I grew up going to college because they didn't have technology, they didn't have devices, they go up to college and they don't know how to use technology. They don't know how to take advantage of it. They don't know how to search. They don't know how to research. They don't know how to look for information. And then they drop out a semester later and we wonder why, right? So it's, it, it's almost like a no choice situation because parents that have resources and have money are investing in their kids' education. So here's this one very quick example. So a few years ago, I was at a Native American uh, 
community in Arizona, and they had a uh, school funded by the United States government by taxpayers under the Indian Education uh, School Program. The library in this school was in complete disarray. The books were laying on the floor. There were no shelves. There was essentially no library. I was about as mad that day as I had been in a four or five year time frame by the time I got out of that community and back to the university because I realized if I could just push a button and say to every kid in that school, oh, don't worry about the fact that the people that work at this school are lazy and, and, and can't get this library fixed and aren't fulfilling their mission, here's your library. Everything you ever imagined that you wanted to read. There's never been a technology that could empower that outcome in the history of yes. humanity. Yes. There is your library. Anything you ever wanted to be able to read is there for you. It, you know, I, we had a, a, some, some resistance from some teachers who were like, I don't know if we want to do this, this technology thing. I said, well, that's okay, fine. The kids are going to have it, and they're just going to leave you behind. <laughs> and you know what they did? Those, those teachers came forward and, and began to learn and became true educational technologists and doing great. I, I yeah. also, the cynical part of me also wonders about people who say, like, the, who are against the technology use in schools <laughs> with this idea that how do you control people? You control yeah. information. And all of a sudden, you're, you're limiting the amount of information that kids like, that grew up in communities like this have access to. It's, mm -hmm. to me, a little striking. So yeah. I worry about those things. Mm -hmm. I, th I heard your question, though, mm -hmm. was about, the, I think, the cost of doing virtual reality and augmented, because we're sort of talking about general technology. And I think there's an agreement that the right. kids have to have access. Adults have to have, have access. You have to have access to the internet. This is where you yeah. are. Yeah. 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 And, um, but I think institutions also mm -hmm. have to ask themselves some hard questions. And, a lot of institutions will just chase a new technology yes. um, instead of asking, you know, what is our learning model? What is it? What outcomes do we want? Because you don't have to go right to virtual reality, right? right? Um, but I know it sounds sexy and like all kinds of people want to do it. But that's nobody very wants expensive. the holodeck. I mean, no one wants <laughs> it. <laughs> and obviously, everything I've read about with technology fails. Failures always talk about implementation and context, and it's not usually about the technology. Yeah. Let's talk about what you just talked about before, the leaving the teachers behind and leaving mm -hmm. the professors behind, and implementation. I mean, mm -hmm. is that, that seems to me one of the places where a lot of this breaks down. You can't necessarily, you, know, you have good ideas, but it's hard to get this, um, the people who need to be implementing it comfortable with it, accepting it, and that's not because necessarily because they're enemies of it. But so so our, our approach is we don't make anyone do anything. If you want to move in this new direction, if you want to use technologies for the way that you teach your course, mm -hmm. we have people that will be able to help you be my guest. If you don't want to, if you want to teach in some more traditional way, be my guest. There are certain courses that can only be taught in traditional ways. You know, when we're teaching lyric opera to music majors, there's only basically one way to really focus on that. And so, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but, so we don't, we don't force anyone to do anything. I'm not thinking about forcing it, but like you need that. No, meaning there's self-selection. Someone wants but to it takes, do it. Then it takes resources and it takes expertise and but it takes so, all that. So, so we in, provide that. So in, in K-12, you're, you're right, right? Just taking technology. Look, if you take technology and put it on top of our current model of education, then we, we're making old education faster and more efficient. Right? And that's not good. What so we need then to you're do sending the worst education back yeah. out. We need, to bring, we need to bring education to the next level. And so it's not just bringing technology, and it's all these other things. So I was part of a team at Google that we built a site called the, the Google for Education Transformation Framework, which is it's not technology that transforms schools. It's leadership and culture and professional development and technology and community yeah, engagement yes. and so on and, so, and learning models and so on. It's all these things that have to be happening at the same time. And so, yes, you're right. You did it well. It's mm -hmm. about looking at all those things, implementing yeah, all those things for real transformation, yeah. not just putting technology in and hoping that things will change. 
if you're trying to, to change and uh, transform a K-12 education system, it's like trying to, to, to move an aircraft carrier. It's, it's, it takes time, but if you get everyone enlisted in the mission and the vision, and that's what it's all about, college career citizenship, that was the, the vision, that was the dream. And, and how are you gonna say no to that? How are you gonna say that some kids get this and some kids that? Every kid's got it. And so once you have that and you have the training, 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 and you train those teachers till they just don't want any more training, you're going to be successful because they, they bought into it and they want to be a part of it. But what we did even better than that was we, and I'm not saying empowered the parents or the students, but true leadership, true leaders will bring out the power in the people. They don't empower the people. And so once the parents knew, hey, this is my school district, and then students say, hey, I do have a say, then all of a sudden you saw this groundswell of support for a transformation that could not be stopped. It could not be stopped. And that's what we need to see uh, more and more in education as a whole. And you'll see this country and this nation really start to, uh, to, limit and to minimize that gap between the rich and the poor, which is the big challenge of the future. If that is not looked at, whether you use digital learning, regular learning, or magic, <laughs> you know, we're going to have some issues. And, 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 and that's why we, we're, we're thankful to be here to talk about this, the digital side of it, but it's really the American side of it. We have to eliminate and minimize that disparity between the rich and the poor. That has to be dealt with. Well, we, but we that's only gotten worse in the last 10, 15 years yes. As, yes. as technology has yes. advanced. So what's going to be sort of this, this leverage point that's going to mm. suddenly make technology become a, a vehicle for, for reversing that and reversing that trend? So the assumption, the assumption is that, in that argument, is that it should have happened 10 or 15 years ago, when in reality, you have to remember that in 1995, 1% of the world was online. 1995 was not that long ago. We're at the very beginning of this, of what's possible. It took 10 years to get to the first billion people to be online, and even today, 20 years later, only 42% of the world is online. So we're at the very beginning of this. So, so can we close the gap? Yes. Is it, was it supposed to happen 15 years ago? No. Technology is finally at the point where it's useful. Some people are more early adopters than others, but we're just getting to the point where these tools can start being useful in what you were talking about, like what does good learning look like? We know. How do we, we don't have to invent anything new. We just have to look at the good research that tells us what learning should look like, what it can look like, and ask ourselves, how do we use technology to bring these things to life? And if we have those conversations, we can go very far in this, in this space. So what, what we have is uneven distribution of mm -hmm. the tools that enhance outcomes. And so we yes. have very uneven distribution. Yep. So this spread in outcome differentials is a function of that unevenness. Mm -hmm. We see it, we can understand it, the technology can help us to narrow that spread. Mm -hmm. We can hopefully reach this point where through empowerment and the defeat of many forms of prejudice that exist yes. in our society that have created this dynamic history, which is not the direction that we want to go in, uh, we can find a way to get down to, and this is my main point, down to the level of the empowerment of every single individual. Yes. Not classes of individuals, yeah. not groups of individuals, yes. not individuals who mm -hmm. look like this or look like that or act like this or act like that. Mm -hmm. Every single individual. Yep. We now are on the precipice of being able to do that. Yep. And I guess I sit here and I mm -hmm. wonder, does the momentum take us and help us reverse the direction or does the momentum of this just sort of reinforce some of the divides mm -hmm. that we've already been building? by class and race. I think Jamie's right. We're at the early stages of an extremely complicated mm -hmm. process. We never mm -hmm. lived in a species where everyone was actually equal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. But it's possible. The impossible is possible. <laughs> we, we showed it in, in, in the Coachella Valley Unified School District. 
And, and I, I see it on that small sort of a microcosm, but I see it as a, macroco mi a macrocosm in this nation. But it's going to take all of us, parents, students, and forcing our governments and forcing our state legislatures and, and, to stop giving me money for textbooks that are static. Give me money for tools that I can truly use that can prepare these kids for, for the future. And, and that's possible. And I think we waste a lot of money sometimes because we, we're still stuck in that traditional way. of uh, We just did a textbook a doctor in, in, Calif in California, and I was like kicking and screaming. They, they had to just force me to sign that thing. I did not want to sign that. That's that five, three or four or five million dollars for a book that's supposed to last us 10 years. How often does information change now in the technology age? Yeah. What, six months now, maybe 12 months? Yeah. And, and you're going to give me a static textbook? That's, we need to make those changes globally as a nation, but all of us need to get involved in it and not just say, well, you know, my, my district is doing well, I'm good. Yeah, yeah, we're I, all going to be affected by this. This all whole idea of, Daryl, that's a great <laughs> example for open educational resources. So yes. at my university, we have moved completely away from publisher textbooks, all open educational resources. So it's For all 85,000 students. For all 85,000 mm -hmm. students. So mm -hmm. no cost to the yes. students, but they're high quality, curated by faculty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What was interesting is we did it because it was the right thing to do for our students. The students over at College Park, which is the traditional campus, the got wind of this, right, the residence hall, and uh, front page of their paper, you know, why, how come UMUC can do this for their <laughs> students, but you can't do it for us? And so there's this whole move over there now for faculty to yes. adopt OERs. There You're you seeing students rising up about this because it, the cost of textbooks is ridiculous. Yes. And they're out of date. Yes. You know, kids, you know, when, you have oh. to lease, when you have to lease your textbook, what does that say about what? Yeah. Yeah. Come on now. <laughs> a house maybe, but not a textbook, please. I felt like there's an undertone or assumption in this conversation that these inequities and what causes these inequities are sort of passive things, things like racism and sexism and so on, and that mm -hmm. when we provide these tools to people that they would lead to these, Magic. they would do good things with them, right? right? Mm -hmm. um, which we know is not true. So I was wondering, knowing that, what, what role do you see sort of the intersection of education and technology play in this need to actually sort of mediate good things? Yeah, so in, in the, at least in the comments that I made, and I appreciate your comment very much, and so, so it's not that these tools are passive ingredients to the defeat of racism or sexism mm -hmm. or, or, or other isms. Uh, it's basically <laughs> that education is the means by which uh, those uh, uh, ideas based on ignorance can ultimately yes. be defeated. And so, so it's not a simple process. It's mm -hmm. education is the process. We're talking about the enhancement of the educational process with these tools, mm -hmm. because if you are not ignorant, uh, you have uh, a better chance of not being a racist because racists are ignorant. And, and another good example of that, suppose I live in rural you know, Appalachia, and I don't know that this new health care bill is going to be detrimental to me. But Suppose I have access and tools and I can read about it, and I understand that there's, there's an opportunity to have a debate about it. I'm going to be a much more informed and have a better decision-making process when it comes time to pull to go to that ballot box. So that's how uh, technology and education is going to play a role in helping us change things. It truly has to start there. That, that's in a kind of an ideal world, though, because mm -hmm. I think right now we're also those mm -hmm. in this environment where just because people have access to information, it doesn't mean mm -hmm. they're getting access to the right information. There's a lot of... Well, they sure. might, they well, might, so they might not choose... They're not but at least they have the yeah. information. They uh, have but, something. No, but it's a lot of times they're getting... We have nothing. They're either. getting... Just, they might be getting, you mm -hmm. know, fake... Uh, 
to, when, you know, it's right. facts. There are there is fake news right. out there. There sure. is disinformation yeah. out sure. there as so, well. So, so you could reinforce a lot of the really wrong information. You so know. one, there's always been fake news. Yes. Two, <laughs> um, <laughs> actually it was worse because you could spread fake news a lot easier through people, and it was harder to stop because you couldn't stop it. But two. Mm -hmm. It, and the assumption is that we need to teach kids how to use these tools. Let's, you know, there's a Stanford study that shows you that 82% of elementary school kids can't tell you the difference between a sponsored website and a real news site. That's scary. And so we do need to do education on teaching these kids how to use these tools. We do need to do education and on adults. how to on how yeah, to research and, and, how, mm -hmm. and just not let's not <laughs> and adults yeah. and let's not yeah, just yeah. assume that just because they're there that they they're they're mm -hmm. they're used for good. We have to be able to take advantage of the of the tools that are available to us. Yeah. Uh, in the classroom for a few years as a special education teacher in East LA, and we had a full blended learning model where every single one of our students had a one-on-one -on -one access to either a tablet or to a Chromebook. Uh, thank you, Google. Um, and through that experience, a lot of our students had access to articles that were at their reading level, um, and they were exposed to a lot of information that benefited them uh, tremendously. Um, however, we dived deep into racial inequities that are happening in the tech industry. When 18% of black and brown graduates are, have, a, have a, a computer science degree and only 5% make up the tech industry, mm -hmm. that's an issue. When only 1%, less than 1% of executives and managers in Silicon Valley are, uh, are black, mm -hmm. that's an issue. Yes. Yeah. How exactly? I'm a, I'm a leprechaun. <laughs> and that's an issue. That's an issue. So my question is, how do we ensure beyond the classroom? beyond the fact that we provide these, this access to technology to our students where they're learning so much, the fact that they even get the degree, that they get that paper, right. it's not enough. Mm -hmm. Beyond these tech industries, what are they doing to ensure that our students of color have equitable access to the breaking down uh, multi-generational poverty? Yeah, so I, I get to, it's a great question because I get to, no, it's important. I'm a lonely person. I want more people like me. The, uh, I, so, so the, there's a couple answers to that. One is awareness, right? So I go around the country, I speak a lot of events, and one of the things I always bring up at a school district or wherever I am is the stats. For example, uh, a computer science graduate makes 40% more than a regular college graduate. The fact that in California, I just did this a couple weeks ago, in California there are 68,000 computer science jobs available and only 4,000 people in California graduated with a computer science degree and only 15% of them were female and only like nine were black or Latino. Like I, you have, there's an awareness issue here, but then we need to build the systems to support that. So in Phoenix, I was part of a team that built a school called the Phoenix Coding Academy where we're, we're solving a problem by building a school. So computer science is embedded in all the subjects. So kids are coming into school learning art and computer science and history and computer science and biology and computer for four years. And I, what we talk about is what's gonna happen at the end of four years of computer science embedded into all their, uh, into their curriculum. Like we're gonna have a 3% college admissions rate because they're gonna be valuable people when they graduate. So we need to build the systems to support that. And I know, you know Google's done a lot of work in this space. We have great programs like CS First. Uh, you know, we, we're, we sponsor Black Girls Code. There's a lot of things that you can do, but at the system level, right, in California, only 15% of the schools that offer AP program offer AP computer science. That's insane. So we need to recognize that computer science is embedded into everything that the future holds. We need to do a better job at the system level. What I told my kids were, create your own Apple. Don't wait for Apple to call you. That's what I told them. And they started believing it because they started coding and they started building robots and doing things that they never thought they could do but because now they have access. So they create the opportunity. You, you got, you, you, yeah. Those kids now are 
they're, they're finding the, their own way. They're, they're determining their own destiny. So if, if, I understand what you're saying, but again, you know, that community took matters into their own hands, and those kids are going to be the ones that, they may be the ones that cure cancer or, or create another, uh, another Apple or Google or whatever, right. and then that opportunity you'll see start to spread out amongst everyone. Well, you, could, you don't even have to build another Apple. You can mm. just build a tool mm. or a feature that a mm. company like Google or Apple needs, and yep. you just get so bought right. out. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. The entrepreneur, yep. Hi, uh, my name is Julian Lehrer. Uh, I'm a freshman at ASU, or sophomore now, I should ah, say. there you <laughs> go. <laughs> um, my question is, um, as tuition rates continue to rise year after year, uh, the recently released Trump budget uh, shows that the Pell Grant program will be cut by $3.9 billion. Um, and I receive a Pell Grant every semester in order to attend. And if I didn't receive that Pell Grant, I would not be able to attend. Um, as a political science major, uh, I have this idea to maybe earmark tax revenue to go towards funding the Pell Grant program even more rather than cutting it. Um, but my question is, what can be done at the federal, state, and collegiate levels in order to make college education more affordable? So what, what we have tried to do is we have said, and we say this publicly, that uh, certainly for a kid from Arizona, we're, we're doing everything we can so that there are no financial barriers whatsoever. So our net tuition cost that is a student's payment at ASU for a year of attendance is $1,800 after grants on average. So we're very excited about that. If you come from certain family income levels uh, and below that, there's no cost uh, for attendance. You're coming in from out of state. You've earned a merit-based scholarship. You're winning a, a need-based scholarship through Pell. Uh, all of us need to find ways to lower our costs. We're working to lower our costs to uh, maintain access. We try to keep our out-of-state tuition at what we call average. That is the average of the country. Uh, and then I'll say something on the Pell Grants because uh, I'm not sure what that, that document uh, that uh, came out of OMB is. It's, it's one of the most farcical federal budget proposals that I've ever had an opportunity to read. It's just filled with farce after farce after farce. And so what's interesting, though, is politics is different than... No, politics is different than, than the uh, budget proposal. Congress, in its last action on the Pell Grants, actually increased Pell Grants to the individual, expanded when a Pell Grant could be used, and expanded the number of people who would be able to be eligible for a Pell Grant. And so I don't see the Congress of the United States yet so cynical that they don't continue to want to invest in people exactly like you, the next generation with Pell Grants. And so there's a number of us that are out there fighting for that. All of us need to find a way to maintain access. We need to make sure that there are no financial barriers to access, and we work really hard to be able to do that. Yeah, I would add, look, we need help to advocating for... Um, money <laughs> that's uh, given back to states so that you can have these great public mm -hmm. university systems. Um, that's being cut left and right. We try to keep our in-state tuition in Maryland. We're the second lowest in the entire uh, state for the public schools. And we give our community college partners uh, large scholarships, but they're essentially discounts. So. We, we are trying to do everything we can, but we've really got to, we've got to start reinvesting back mm. in public education. I think that we're giving up a little mm. bit and saying, well, we've got to find other revenue sources, mm. and we do, but we need you all to help us. So get elected and, and get more money. No, I'm serious. We need good people in, in, in public, public offices. But honestly, one of the revenue sources that people are using is revenue that they're making from the distance education programs. A lot of, the, a lot of universities are using their distance education programs um, not to cut costs for students, not to cut costs of attendance for students, yeah. but to sort of generate revenue. The, 
they're, they're charging revenue, they're charging tuition based on the market, not necessarily but based on the cost. But you're forgetting one thing, and so there's the cost mm. basis for the delivery of the program. Mm -hmm. So if the cost basis is low for the continuing education program or the online program, that's not an illegitimate way to generate revenue to lower the cost in the rest of the institution. So any organization has to find those programs that are more expensive those right. to offer, those programs that are less expensive to offer. For us to produce a nurse, for instance, mm -hmm. is, is very, very expensive, but we don't charge the nursing students that tuition level. Yeah. And so we have to balance this yeah. through all of our programs back yeah. and forth. That's right. But it's a place to be, to, just to be sort of more transparent about it, this is a place where technology and dig digitization is actually helping the universities achieve savings, but you're, you're using them to, to make sa to use to help your institution yourselves, mm -hmm. not necessarily to like lower the lower the tuition bill for the student. Oh, we did use we did we, so our 17% uh, of our revenue off the top for uh, a number of our programs is taken for financial aid for other students that can't afford, and that includes our online students. And so, you know, we have we have ways in which we generate revenue internally to be able to affect the cost basis so that we can live up to our our, our responsibility to make certain that students are not left out for financial mm -hmm. reasons. I just have to say this, I'm sorry. Um, how many of you uh, utilize some type of assistance, student loans, when you raise your hand when you went to college? Uh, okay, that's, oh, yeah. oh boy, 80% of the audience, okay. <laughs> so I have, I have four kids, two, two of my daughters, I really have five, but I have four kids who, two, two of my daughters have finished UCs, right? That's $250,000. I got two sons, 14 and 16. That's probably another $250,000. Now, that's about, if I were to move back to Memphis, Tennessee, I could buy like four mansions with that money. Oh. <laughs> okay, so, so going to your point is, why don't we start thinking about, you know, the, doing this together again and not, you know, alienating different populations. And if we stratify, I'm not correct, if we go along with that budget that they put out there, like you said. The farcical oh, one. Oh, the farcical one. <laughs> Jamie said, it sounds again? like you said far, the fart one. But anyway, <laughs> it's a bad budget. Farcical. I didn't want, <laughs> want to go there, but that, that's draconian. We can't allow that. Everybody needs to speak up and make some phone calls. Same thing with that health bill. And I don't want to go political on you, but I am. High C-SPAN. But the fact is that what you're saying is we got to help students like him. He should not come out uh, of college drowned with debt, where he never gets ahead again. Right. A lot of kids are dying, still owing money, or their parents now owe the money. Yeah. We could do better. I'm Jack Sokoloff. I wear a number of hats. I'm the chairman of the Health Futures Council at ASU which is a group of uh, thought leaders related to some of these issues related to the healthcare focus. But what I really wanted to address in relationship to the technology application is we're constantly battling the whole issue between healthcare expenditures and expenditures for higher education. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I, I had an epiphany today. I was fortunate enough to be in Washington, D.C. I'm working with Dr. Shulkin, who's the secretary of the VA. And there is essentially a, a, a little-known fact that the VA has the largest telemedicine program in the world. 2.5 million visits occur vis-a-vis -vis their telemedicine program from a company here that's actually based in Scottsdale, Arizona. It's called Global Med. The question that I'm, the question I'm bringing up is that in relationship to the focus of the cost expenditures that could be reduced using these technologies are prohibited for, by a variety of different political and social and administrative work processes and, and agendas in such a way that it's almost impossible to use technology efficiently to reduce significant costs that then could be reinvested in the education or the healthcare area. What are your thoughts on, on bringing more efficiencies with technology to some of these tougher areas? So it's political. And I'm sorry, I, yeah. this, this raises my uh, 
My blood pressure? Yeah, blood pressure, that's it. <laughs> because this is political. We cannot, we, but we let it happen. You know, but, but, you know when we go to, if we go to the ballot box and vote for people who support these kind of you know, limitations, then we, we're letting it happen. So people have to get more involved because if you have the technology to lower the cost, that's going to help everybody. Right. You know, it's not, and it, I call it profit over, the profit over people syndrome. That we got to get away from that, but people have to stand up and participate. You know, we can't let what happened last year uh, continue to happen. If, if, if those kind of people are going to support people who don't care about people dying because they don't have health care, or that we can't lower the cost because we won't use the devices that are available to us. So I'm off my sofa. So <laughs> I just, I, Dr. Crow, who, by the way, has never made me chairman of any committee, but that's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's talked a little bit about this is that universities also have a responsibility to, to, to transform themselves and, and to figure out how to use digital tools, not just to provide uh, learning for students, but also to run their businesses, right? Every, every industry, every, every organization is trying to find ways to digitally transform themselves and universities should be no different. And so there are opportunities for great cost savings in terms of how you structure, how you run things. I mean, you have universities that are running four or five or six data centers that are at a cost that's ridiculous when they don't need to do that. There's lots of opportunities there. So I think universities need to look at themselves and, and figure out how to, how to digitally transform themselves uh, so that they can actually run more efficient. Not that they're not trying, but we can do better in that space. That wasn't just a commercial for the cloud, was it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a, it was a commercial for, for you know, I, besides, I spent seven years at Accenture working in, 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 in strategy and consulting side. So we 20 years we've been talking about how organizations need to transform themselves. <laughs> Universities have been a little slower to that. Yeah. But, but yep. there's also a human cost, and, and I, I live this every day. Um, whenever we, and we do try to be more efficient using technology, I mean, we, we, we're in the cloud now, so we got rid of our data center, but there's a cost to this. I mean, there are human beings that have to, that are laid off or that we try to find them other jobs, but mm -hmm. often they're not. And so we, we need, that's some of the cultural piece of it, but I do think we have to, we have to take that seriously um, because it, it is hard when you displace people. Mm -hmm. This is what's c coming though. There's going to be more and more of this displacement. We've got to help people realize, and, and this kind of goes back to an earlier part of our conversation. We have to help people realize it's a long life. You're probably going to have nine different kinds of careers, right? And so keep Same going thing. back and reinventing yourself. Mm -hmm. um, there's just there's many different careers out there for people. Right. You can't just stay. I think I think the only thing I would add. Uh, there's a story a, a few years ago. I was asked by the editor of a magazine called Nature Magazine, which is one of the top sort of comprehensive science magazines in the country. He said, uh, I, I need an article in two weeks describing what you think about whether or not the National Institutes of Health should add a 28th research institute. And so I, I, I wrote this thing, and, and I said, uh, no, they shouldn't. Uh, what they should do is they should have three institutes. One should be focused as the greatest center on the, on, of, in human history on understanding the body, biology, medicine, everything about the cell, everything about cancer, mm -hmm. nothing left off, whatever it costs to understand everything about how we work. Not 28 institutes working on that one with lots of programs in it. Then a second institute uh, should be designed on outcomes. Mm -hmm. How do you even out the outcomes at the highest possible level for everyone in our society and how do you figure out how to do that? So that's mm -hmm. new structures, new designs, new organizations, new economic models and so mm -hmm. forth. And the third institute was about lowering the cost. Of healthcare, which is now at nine thousand dollars or more per person per year in the country for relatively marginal outcomes for uh, large segments of our population. So that article was 
not well received. Uh, and so, uh, so a few days, it got published in Nature, and then the Boston Globe called up and said, we want to run it in the Sunday edition as the main article in some Sunday thing. And so I got, I got more... So one guy said I was an illegitimate child of McCain, and what they meant by that, I, I, I don't think my mother knew him, and so, and so <laughs> what they meant by that was surely I had been mentally corrupted by some kind of conservative logic, and that now all I was doing was spewing uh, vile, vile uh, that would then somehow take money away from science. That's literally what these articles said. Right. There was no interest in the lowering of costs. There was no interest in the maximization of outcomes across the broader elements of society. And so the answer to your question is it is culture. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's all the time we have for the program. Um, before we end tonight, on behalf of Zocalo Public Square, I'd like to thank ASU for making this event possible. And we'd like to thank our new partners at the Japanese American National Museum for bringing us into their beautiful space. I want to thank all of you for joining us tonight. And we invite you to please stick around for our reception, which is going to be held just out in the lobby where you entered. And of course, let's give a big round of applause to our great panelists tonight. Thank you. Thank you.